Our scripture reading today comes from Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 20. And our sermon today is entitled, The Book of Acts, Judas Iscariot. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, and James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field, and with reward of his wickedness, and, f and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. May the Lord bless us in the reading of his holy word. As we continue our series on the burgeoning church in Acts, we will see that the growth of the church is stupendous. It grows exponentially day by day. God continues to add to their number. We will see miraculous sermons being preached by Peter and Paul and Stephen and, and others as well. We will see them um, um, confront the leaders of the day. They even confront one another. And it's an exciting part, a time in the church of God. But we will also see the challenging parts of the church we will see times in the church where we will have to lament at things that go wrong. And what we see here in the beginning of Acts is something that we will continue to see in the church and even the church today. That the church itself is never this pristine institution without sin without struggle. And yet we still see that even in the midst of the struggling church, God's kingdom still goes forward. These apostles who sat here waiting for the Holy Spirit to come down would be utterly amazed at how the church has grown utterly amazed to hear the gospel preached 
in every continent of this known world. But in the same instance, as we continue this life as a church together, we must do so with sober-mindedness to understand that the church as a whole will never be pristine until the Lord himself returns. Acts chapter 1, verse 12 and 20. We get a glimpse of Peter and the apostles with the women and, and, and many other disciples waiting in the upper room. And they devoted themselves in prayer. They devoted themselves in fellowship and the reading of God's word as well. And then Peter stood up. And his first speech concerned Judas Iscariot. One of the twelve who had betrayed Jesus for 30 coins, betrayed Jesus with a kiss, had schemed with the leaders, the religious leaders of the day, of when, where, and how. This man, this apostle, who had known God, betrayed the one who was to bring the kingdom to light. I think any of us would just sort of skim through this and move on to the good stuff in the book of Acts. But we have to stop. And we have to understand the heart of Jesus. And we have to understand how the church grows and how in the midst of our growth there will always be sorrow. Imagine you had 12 people you were working with to build a church. Twelve men. And for three years, you ate together. You shared drink together. You laughed together. The same Judas, along with other apostles and disciples who were, who were sent out and given power to cast out demons power to, to preach the kingdom of God, saw demons being, being exercised by his very own words and the other apostles seeing that as well, that he is one of us. Sharing in the ministry for three years. And then knowing on that day when he kissed the Savior, that he had betrayed them. 
it's easy for us, some of, you, some of us here, to say, well, one out, of, one out of 12 is not bad. We got 11 still standing. But every one of those apostles, Jesus loved. Even Judas himself. There are two points that I would like to, to make here. One is to see Jesus' attitude towards Judas and to see what Judas could have done perhaps differently. And second, to see how God's kingdom still moves forward in fruition. So first, people often wonder did Jesus have a lack of judgment? He is, he is God himself. Surely he should have known that, that, um, that, that this person, Judas, was going to betray him. Why would he choose him? And let's say that, that he didn't know. Does that mean that he had a lack of judgment amongst those people? That he chose one person he thought was going to be with him to the very end, but wasn't. We know that here in this passage that Scripture shared, that, 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 that in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 16, that concerning this man, Judas, David spoke about in the Psalms, that there would be one who, who, would, who would betray Christ himself. And so the question that, that we have as people is that then was Judas himself was he predestined to just be this traitor? Did God create Judas to play this role so that in the very end he would just come to, to betray Jesus and to kill himself in the very end. And if so, if that's true, then what choice did Judas had at all? And if that is true, what choice does any of us have at all? You see, if, if we're fatalistic about this idea of predestination, that everything, that our choices do not have any um, um, any import, any effect in what happens in the future, if we are completely fatalistic about our lives, then no matter what happens, our hearts just get hard. That's just the way it's supposed to happen. That's just the way she was. That's just the way he was. So be it. And there will be no grace or no mercy towards that person. I don't know if they still read, um, do you still read Shakespeare in high school or even in college, but I still remember in 10th grade when I was forced to read Shakespeare. Um, I was forced. Um, and we were reading Oedipus Rex. And it was the most, one of the most horrific books I've ever read. Because the Greek gods basically said, 
Oedipus, you will kill your father and marry your mom. I was like, dude, I'm, I'm 16. I can't handle this. And the whole story is about how Oedipus basically tries to do everything to, to not allow this, uh, this fate to become accomplished. But in the end, his choices don't matter. In the end, his fate is his fate. And he winds up killing his father and marrying his mother. And the reader is just hands up in the air. Tragedy. When we look at Judas, we, we can't simply look at them and go, well, I guess he was fated for perdition. And walk away. Predestination does not mean fatalism. God's, God's choosing of people for salvation does not mean we're fatalistic about it. In fact, for us as, as a Reformed church, if we actually believe that predestination means fatalism, then we have misread Scripture. Jesus loved Judas to the very end. Jesus in his ministry with Judas didn't say, all right, I know that you're going to betray me. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to minister to you. I'm going to give you the worst seat when we all eat together. But Jesus loved Judas. And you see, Judas's choices are actually also the reason why well, he betrayed Jesus and the ultimate reason why he committed suicide. It's not just by God's sovereignty, but it's human will and responsibility as well. Jesus had every opportunity to say no. And even at the very end, after he betrayed Jesus, we know that Judas was in deep sorrow, that he re returned the coins and it's with these coins, this, this blood money, basically, where, where, the, where, the, the, uh, where the religious leaders of the day bought this field. That's why it's called the, the field of blood, because it was, it was bought with blood money. And so we know that Judas had sorrow. But his sorrow was different. Even though we know that by God's sovereignty, which cannot be thwarted, that this would come to pass, that does not negate the responsibility of each person in Judas himself to repent and come to the Lord. Judas should have repented. Judas should have Return to the Lord. 
Second Corinthians five seventeen we we saw alluded to in our um, in our call to repentance that worldly sorrow leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance and leads to life. You see, brothers and sisters, when we see Jesus and we see um, Judas and we see the interaction between them, we, we have to understand that election and free will are both part of this world. And in fact, without both of them together, life would be unbearable. To live a world of fa- live in the world of fatalism, why try to do anything? Why? Just sit in your room and play games all day. Sit in your room and watch Netflix all day. On the other hand, if everything is human responsibility, if our, if our faith is all on us, if everything is about every choice that we make, and there is no divine God, if you really thought deeply about that, you would do the same thing. You would hide in your room and not venture out. For every choice that you would make would have severe repercussions in this world. Both are too too big to bear, too heavy to bear. But this is where scripture is beautiful. If you read the Bible carefully, it's both and, and. And above it is, yes, God's sovereignty. But our choices do make a difference. And when you read Scripture, Scripture doesn't give a philosophical diatribe about, about sovereignty and free will. Scripture just assumes that this is the way the world works. And it's okay that this is the way the world works. There are a few analogies that can work here. But J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, in the beginning chapters, uh, talks about what he likes to call um, an antinomy. Antinomy is like something that appears paradoxical but really isn't. He calls free will and, and uh, election as, as, as their, their bedfo- bedfellows. They, they sleep together. There's, there's no problem. An analogy he gives is light. That light behaves both like a particle and a wave, depending on how you want to measure it. But we know that waves are massless, but particles have mass. So which one is it? It's, well, it's both. But, but How? We know in quantum physics that particles exist in two different places at times. We know quantum entanglement is the, is, is the, is the technology for the new quantum computing, but it makes absolutely no sense to us. How can, two th- how can information be in two different places at the same time? It is. So even if science can move towards this, 
the Bible itself had absolutely no problems with this in terms of the moral realm. God is both sovereign and our choices matter. And we see this in Judas. We as God's people, when we look at someone like Judas, we weep. We weep for him. In our churches today, we need to be sober-minded. We don't know who's elect and who's not. We do not know God's will. But we do know that we are called to love one another and to love one another deeply. We are not called to judge whether or not someone is elect or not by some actions they've had in the past day or week or even a year. But we are to love and to love deeply. We are to weep when people walk away from the faith and not go, I guess you just wasn't elect. We are to weep deeply. And then we are to rejoice greatly when someone does come to know Jesus and confesses his name. Secondly, God's kingdom continues to move forward. We as a church of Christ, we have sort of our eyes on two things. One is, is one another. We need to love one another. But the second is even greater, and that's to love God and to love God's kingdom. And to know that in the midst of whatever might happen in the church, when we see God's kingdom go forth, when we see the word of God being preached, when we see people come to know him, we will rejoice. And we will always rejoice. Our greater perspective of all things it's not to look at all the wrong things that are going in the churches around us or even the wrong things that are going in our church. But to look at the bigger picture. God's kingdom keeps moving forward. God's kingdom will never, ever be stopped. It will prevail. And we move forward for the sake of the gospel. So one, do weep. Do weep when things just don't go well. We are called to weep. But don't get stuck there. Don't get stuck there. Don't look at all the bad things that happened in your past churches or even here and go, I'm going to and, and go like, this is all I can think about. Don't get stuck. Worldly sorrow, that type of sorrow, will lead to death. 
there's only one piece of good news that you need to hear. Even in the midst of turmoil. Only one piece of good news. And that, and that is Jesus is risen. His kingdom is here. And Jesus will return. And there's nothing about that news that you can nitpick on. <laughs> nothing. It is the only pure good news that you can hear. The only perfect good news that you need to preach to yourself. The only good news that will help you, that will aid you, that will compel you to move in joy in the Lord. This is the early church. This is the modern church. And this will be what churches will be like until the Lord comes back. But God has been faithful to his church, has he not? So let us, brothers and sisters, continue in faithfulness and joy unto him. Let's pray. Father, how sobering it is to know that to be a part of your kingdom does not mean, Lord, that we live in a world of perfection yet. It does not mean that we are to see the world with rose-colored glasses. It does not mean that we need to see the church as a place of perfection. But to come to know you know, means, Lord, that we know that one day your kingdom will be perfected, and that is what we all long for. To know you means, Laura, that the gospel of Jesus coming to save sinners is the most precious truth to us. And to know, Lord, that our personal relationship with you, of, of knowing that you know our name and we know your name, is the most glorious relationship we have. And in doing so, Lord God, we, we know that this world will have its share of of experiences that the early church went through with people like Judas. So teach us, Lord, as your people to have proper hearts, to weep when we do need to weep, but not to allow the weeping, Lord, to overcome us. And to rejoice, Lord, always, always rejoice. For we know that the resurrection power of Christ is limitless, is perfection. And let us sit in your throne room, meditating on that goodness all the days of our lives. We thank you for CCPC. We thank you for this church. And we thank you, Lord, for all the churches in the world that are laboring to spread the good news of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.